This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It was a promise made back in September. $100 million for the hard-hit tourism industry that's basically been shut down throughout the pandemic. Well, throughout, we've been hearing about businesses that are barely hanging on. Well, it is now the very end of March seven months later, and for many, the end of the fiscal year. And not a single dollar of that cash has been paid out. You know, I'm sure that the bureaucrats who are supposed to be administering this money are receiving their paychecks regularly. What do you think? Is a delay like that justified? The deadline was supposed to be in November. That's a lot of time to decide who is getting that money. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Christopher Bluer, President and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, Bruce O'Hare, founder of Lakeshore Excursions, and Daniel Safiani, VP of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Hi, and welcome to you all. Hi, Libby. Let Hi, us Libby. Be- Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you for coming on. Let's begin with Bruce O'Hare. You uh, run a tourism business. Uh, how were you hit in terms of your revenue, and how much have you needed that money? Hi, Libby. Hi. And I uh, wanted to start up by saying thank you for inviting us to share our story. Uh, our company, we are tour operators, and we work specifically with uh, cruise ships on the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Seaway, and the Canadian Maritimes. So we have been doing this for 20 years, the the cruise business on the Great Lakes, and it may come as a surprise to some of your listeners, is is growing. It's growing very quickly. Um, We, when COVID began in March 2020, Transport Canada and Public Health Agency of Canada did the right thing, and they suspended our operations and everyone else right across Canada. Um, that continued and we are getting ready to restart. Uh, we begin in Toronto on the very first couple of days of May. So we're about four or five weeks away. But your question is, how has it affected us? Well, a complete shutdown. So we went from hero to zero and our losses would be probably somewhere around uh, $6 million. Wow. Over the last uh, few years, two years, and and you had no money coming in. So, uh, when did you apply for this fund? Yeah, we uh, actually saw the fund, and we waited uh, and applied in early November, and uh, we filled out a few of these. It's not the first time we filled out another uh, application earlier on for funding from the province, and we were denied that one. Uh, we had a Tico license for many years. We let it lapse. It was a product development thing we did as a division of our company. And uh, we reapplied for TECO and submitted our application, but there was a window of six weeks and we didn't have a license. There was no cost for the license. And uh, some bureaucrat somewhere found out and disqualified us on the first round. That was uh, in 2020. Second round, we yeah we're, we continue to wait. Uh, they were supposed to let us and everyone else know May the 8th. Uh, here we are at the end of March and uh, so far radio silence. Wow. I mean, uh, you know, let's bring in uh, Christopher Bloor. I mean, I am assuming that there are companies that in this interim have gone under. Hi, Libby. Thank Hi. you for the invitation to be on. 
Uh, what you've just heard from Bruce uh, is kind of the uh, picture that we've had within the industry for the last two years. The, the scale of losses has been catastrophic for many of our members, up to 93% of revenues lost over these last two years. And of course, that's clearly unsustainable. And our industry has been so uh, so difficultly uh, and, and severely impacted by restrictions on capacity, restrictions on movement. You know, they, our industry has been labelled the hardest hit, and it really has been in terms of the bottom line for many of our businesses. And so, of course, one of the biggest frustrations about the delay in this fund, and I'm really hoping that we could have actually some really good news at the end of the, today on this, is that it hasn't been a, a it has prevented some of our businesses being able to plan what they were going to do at, at, in March break and for the summer period because our industry has lost two real full summers. And so we're really talking about how we can plan to be back in 2023 and 2024. And this summer is a really important part of it. But for our businesses to scale up, they need to be able to rehire Ontarians. Uh, they need to make changes to their business layouts. They need to accommodate people who might have uh, different uh, relaxation or, 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 or comfort levels with the way in which uh, you know the man, mask mandate has now been lifted and many other things. And so that money that has been promised in the recovery program, which is an excellent program, really could have done with coming out a couple of weeks earlier at least. And that would have given our businesses a level of certainty that they've not had over the last two years to make business decisions. So we're, of course, really frustrated. We're not surprised that it's taken a long time uh, to, uh, to to do the bureaucracy on this because so many of our businesses have met that 50% revenue loss criteria that was at the heart of this program. And, and to me, it probably suggests that we're going to need to go back to the provincial government and the federal government for more funding because if we really want our tourism industry to remain uh, as competitive as it has been over the last few years, it's really been such an economic driver for us in Ontario. We're going to need to get this industry through this really difficult recovery period. Daniel Safayini, okay, I get that it takes some time, but what have these bureaucrats done? I mean, what is a reasonable amount of time to get money out the door? We saw with CERB that when it's an emergency, and now, of course, that was CRA that did it, uh, it can be done. Yeah, and certainly with some of those early programs, there was... uh, you know, there was a balance to be made about how quickly to get the money out the door versus um, the accuracy of where all of that money went. And I think later it was bared out that um, perhaps some of the money uh, wasn't as judiciously allocated as it could have been. And so I think there's perhaps some merit to making sure that the government takes their time to get the program design and parameters right so that there isn't a situation like that on the other side. But I think taking a step back, um, entering the third year of the pandemic now, I think there was more benefit of the doubt and understanding for, um, you know, the unpredictable nature of the crisis and the difficult situation that that put government in. Now we find ourselves in a situation in which we've repeatedly called out the need that when you have public health measures being implemented, that's going to impact the viability of businesses through no fault of their own. It needs to be met immediately and commensurately with financial support targeted directly towards those impacted. And so I think the frustration now is that why so many months and years into the pandemic are we still sounding like a bit of uh, a broken record when it comes to um, the importance of the timeliness for these programs to be rolled out? Because as you're hearing on the line right now, um, there is a material impact um, for businesses uh, in terms of their ability to plan, to sustain their operations, to gear up for the tourism season, which is weeks away. Well, yeah, and it's not only that, it's to stay in business. I, I mean, again, uh, do you have an inkling of how many uh, that were hanging on went under in this seven-month interval? I mean, the, the, you know, the parameters were laid out. There was a deadline of November to apply. Why has none of that money been given out? They had their parameters. Um, you know, maybe there were some cases they couldn't decide, but surely a lot of them were probably pretty clear cut. 
Well, look, I think that's a good question for the government to answer. But what, you know, what I will say is that the bigger point for us here as the Ontario Chamber of Commerce is around the need to improve business competence and predictability. Uh, predictability is fundamental to business competence, economic recovery, and prosperity. So what does that mean? It means that businesses need a stable and predictable policy environment with clear timelines, contracts, consultations and strategies to help them plan for the future. Um, and so in an instance like this, I think it's probably very difficult for a tourism operator to plan for not only the future, but even the week ahead without having visibility into um, when the support might be arriving and how they can leverage that to maintain their operations and gear up for the tourism season. Well, yeah, again, Bruce O'Hare, I mean, do you wonder what these people are doing? Yeah, it's uh, the optics are, and, and I hope it's not the case that the Ford government may be waiting uh, to get a little bit closer to the election to announce funding. And uh, we, we sure hope that's not the case, but it really is beginning. <laughs> I love uh, the but, way you put that. <laughs> well, that's kind of what it looks like. And uh, meanwhile, companies like, like ours are really on a nice edge uh, planning, hiring staff, replacing staff, and uh we're not in the worst business. We're one of them. We're the first to close and we'll be the, one of the last to reopen. But there are companies in, in worse shape than us. And, uh, uh, and the motor coach industry in Ontario is a real good example of that. Uh, those fellows are looking at $25,000 to put a motor coach back on the road after being parked for a better part of two years. Uh, so they're, they've got huge capital costs. And, and frankly, we don't have that. They do. There's some real, uh, the tourism sector is really struggling today. It would have been nice if, if the province of Ontario would have done the, what they said they were going to do and make a decision in January when they were supposed to. Uh, it's, it's hard to understand what, what the holdup is. Well, yeah. And, you know, um, Christopher, you were saying you think there might be good news today. Well, uh, if, it is, in fact, uh, the fiscal year aligns, then uh, whoever doesn't spend that money might lose it. <laughs> so that well, might be what would be behind that. Well, Libby, I, I, yeah, you know, I, I do hope there's good news today because as Bruce is so articulately uh, put forward, you know, this has been an impossible time for so many different individual sectors of our industry. But one thing that I just really want to get across, and, and especially to the politicians at all levels, because this is something that we're dealing with uh, on the federal level too, is that you know when there are promises made about finances, and as Daniel so eloquently said, we need that money to flow quicker to the businesses affected. And we're having that fight on the federal level right now with some of the programs that have been laid out to support our industry. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, what, you know, has this had an effect on some businesses or whether they've closed or not. I don't think that we're at that point right now, but we're actually entering what I think is the most dangerous time for our, for our tourism ministry and the visitor economy in general, because there is a feeling at the moment, if you speak to politicians or, or senior bureaucrats, that the industry is fine, that the industry is recovered. We've opened, we've, re, you know, we've removed restrictions on travel. We've re, removed restrictions on capacity and we're removing testing at the border now largely. But I'm afraid after two years and, and with consumer confidence so fragile right now, that's really not true on the, on, on, on the front line. And so we're really trying to push politicians to get money out the door quicker because, you know, we survey our members uh, uh, almost every month. And over the last two years, many of them have taken on levels of debt that we've really never seen in our industry before. Many of our businesses have six, seven-figure debts now. And so, you know, with the federal programs and this provincial program that we're talking about today, there are still outstanding monies that are meant to get to our industry. And if that money doesn't flow, then I could see in the next six to eight weeks an increase in the number of businesses shuttering permanently. And that would be a real shame because in the last two years, thanks to the work of uh, Minister McLeod and others and the industry as a whole, we have managed to reduce the number of businesses that we've lost. And, you know, I'm sure Daniel would, would talk to this, but I think we're discovering how important our visitor economy is to our province. Na nationally, one in Well, and, you know, I think you, you make a good point. Not every part of the tourism industry will recover equally. I mean, you talk about yeah. cruise ships. Uh, I know a lot of people who are not ready to get on a cruise ship, who loved them yeah. beforehand. 
so it's a matter of individual choice. Mask mandates have been listed, lifted, but you go to a lot of places and everybody's still wearing a mask. Yes. We're in the middle of a sixth wave. Yeah, or at the beginning. And this, and this is the point of it. Like we were, we were talking with some of our sports colleagues. You know, uh, you know, we saw some data released by Abacus uh, just a few days ago that showed, you know, almost four in ten uh, Ontarians are not comfortable going to a major sporting event if there are no mask mandates. And so that is going to mean that our recovery is going to be uneven as our industry uh, across the across the province. And so you know we're far from out of the woods yet as an industry. And so that's that that does add to the concern when monies that are promised haven't flowed uh, flowed to businesses yet. Well, uh, we're running out of time on this. Uh, Daniel, what would you like to leave us with? Well, look, I would echo everything that Chris has said uh, full-throatedly as well as Bruce and, you know, only add that we are certainly not out of the woods yet on this. And um, to Chris's point on debt, uh, there's more the government can do to target uh, debts and interest rate relief to those most highly indebted businesses and sectors. And, um, you know, there's other things that we can do, too, uh, in terms of encouraging people to travel local. The provincial government did announce a vacation tax credit. I feel like with borders opening, perhaps people have maybe forgotten about that. So promoting the sector, encouraging people to take advantage of that credit and continuing to work with stakeholders to ensure they have what they need, um, not only to uh, survive the pandemic, but to come out on the other end strong. Um, and to that end, I will just say that uh, the Ontario Chamber is partnering with the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario um, to host some joint roundtables and to uh, come up with a made-in-Ontario tourism strategy for what the future of the sector could look like. But to get there, we need to make sure that we uh, can uh, appropriately support the folks that are trying to survive right now in this sector uh, amidst all this uncertainty. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for that, Daniel Safayeni, Bruce O'Hare, and Christopher Bluer. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, speaking of government money that is promised and maybe takes a while to flow, we'll be talking about the budget, which has been set for April the 7th, the week tomorrow, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Speaking of government promises, the federal budget will come down a week tomorrow on April the 7th. And at a time when our deficit is through the roof because of pandemic costs, pandemic relief, there are costly programs the government has committed to. There's Pharmacare. Oh, that one goes back a while. And dental care. And these are supposedly conditions for the liberal NDP alliance. And uh, they're promising progress on those. And I guess we'll find out what that actually amounts to. The war in Ukraine has ramped up the urgency of meeting our unfulfilled NATO commitment of 2% of GDP on military spending. So will we see that? Yesterday, the procurement minister announced that we're moving forward on buying new jets. We're going to go with Lockheed Martin CF-35s. And that process has been going on for more than a decade. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's packaged as something new. What do you think? What are your priorities? What do you want to see? It was interesting. Last week, we heard from a lot of people who really are looking forward to that dental plan. The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Charles Bird, Managing Principal at Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, and John McEtishan, a conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research. Hi, guys. Welcome. Thanks for hey, being Libby, with how us. how are you? Fine. Glad to be here. Uh, great. Um, Charles, I haven't talked to you in ages, so let us begin with you. What do you expect uh, we will actually see uh, and with money that is actually going to flow. 
Well, I mean, you have to start off with uh, some of the realities that we find ourselves in now. First off, we've obviously had two-plus years of COVID, which has entailed massive amounts of federal spending and provincial spending. Um, our deficit as of 2021 was um, over $325 billion. Uh, that's since been reduced considerably, but is still sitting at just under $150 billion. So those, those are big numbers. So if, you, if you're the Minister of Finance, uh, which I hasten to point out I am not, um, <laughs> nor do I speak on behalf of the Department of Finance or the Government of Canada, uh, there, are, there are a number of immediate concerns, um, a couple of which you've obviously made reference to. Um, but probably most pressing in the minds of finance officials are sort of the, the twin dangers of both interest rates, which are which are expected to rise considerably in 2022 and 2023, and also uh, inflation. That is something that is uh, of uh, increasing concern to not just federal finance officials, but officials across the country and, in fact, around the world. Well, that's their key promise. They're saying they're going to make life more affordable. To yeah, me, that sounds of, like handing out money. Yeah, there's there's a number of ways they can do that. Um, but but the reality is that the the spending that we've seen in the last two years is simply not sustainable. I don't think there's too many people who would who would argue otherwise. And of course, the spending has happened in very very specific circumstances. And we pray we pray, Libby, that COVID will be behind us um, in the not too distant future, and that we'll start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, by this summer, but probably the, the the chief the chief concern is remains inflation because that really goes to um, to folks at home, to seniors, to young families, and trying to get inflation under control is key. So I think you're going to see the minister of finance thread a, a very very deliberate needle here, which is the acknowledged need to rein in federal spending where she can. Um, but also, uh, I mean, you look at what's going on in Ukraine at the moment and, and the very sudden realization over recent weeks, really, that governments around the world are going to simply have to spend a lot more on defense. And in the case of Canada, you know, that dwarfs that kind of spending, the kind of spending that's envisioned dwarfs anything that's included in the liberal NDP agreement along the lines of dental care and pharmacare. Uh, it dwarfs a lot of other considerations. We're talking about increases of tens of billions of dollars per year. And so I'm not sure this will be like a, a Christmas tree budget. I think you may actually see some pretty significant uh, steps taken towards um, putting spending out to outlying years and uh, and reigning in spending generally. John McEtitian, do you think uh, there have been hints that military spending will go up, but is it going to go up all the way to where we have promised it will be? Well, it, it comes down to what's the real number and what's going to be in the budget, right? Um, as uh, my friend just alluded to, uh, they announced something, but then they put it over four, five, 10, 15 years, then it doesn't actually impact the budget. So uh, I, I personally don't believe the Liberals are capable of, of making life better for Canadians. Uh, but they are absolutely masterful at fooling people into thinking that's true. Uh, the single largest inflationary force we have right now is uh, the uh, ill-conceived, badly implemented uh, philosophical liberal plan to raise our taxes on gasoline and other carbon uh, uh, factors that they can until they make life completely unbearable for us. Uh, and yet to no positive impact, right? They're collecting all that tax. They're raising it. I think there's another one due in a couple of days, but it doesn't matter, right? The fact that it has no actual effect except to raise the price on everything. Um, you know, this, this finance minister, uh, I don't think there's anybody in the country not aware that she's waiting to take over from the boss when he decides to retire. And depending on the day, that's either in a year or five or maybe 20. <laughs> so you've got these interesting different dynamics at play, but I think what you're going to see is the largest budget in history, and nobody, no matter how much they decide to announce in spending on whatever program, nobody is going to be happy 
because what they did with COVID was show to people that, hey, if it actually matters to us, then we don't care how much it costs and we don't care how we're going to pay for it. We're going to spend it. So now the problem is putting that genie back in the bottle by saying to everybody who's got a specific concern, oh, you're not that important. Oh, we got to pay for the stuff we've already spent. And there's only two ways to do that, restraint or higher taxes. Uh, and, well, I think uh, the liberals will be tempted on the second one. I'm not sure how much more appetite there is for that. Uh, Charles, do you think uh, we'll see some higher taxes? I didn't even mention the daycare deal, and that's a done deal. That's That money is, I don't think they can defer that money. Well, I mean, there, taxes and restraint are, are two options, but the, the, the one that governments traditionally rely on more than anything else is economic growth. And we've already seen considerable economic growth coming out of uh, the depths of the pandemic, those numbers are artificially high, largely because things were just so bad in 2020 and 2021. So I think one of the priorities for the government will be what can they do to stimulate growth and innovation, especially in the conduct, in the context of having moved from a pandemic to an endemic. Because, I mean, we have to be realistic that this thing is going to be with us for a long time in some form. And, well, as a society, we're going to have to make, you know, everyday provisions around making sure that we don't let the genie out of the bottle in terms of uh, the virus. But that also impacts how governments go about um, doing business and deciding what to spend and where to spend. But in terms of, you know, if you call... um you know, a tax on pollution, a tax on carbon, a tax increase. I, I suppose you can, but but the reality is that this is something we've been talking about as a government since 2015, and which is now being made real. And in fact, of the 9.1 billion announced um, by the prime minister with respect to climate change spending, I suspect you'll see a very very clear itemization of exactly how that money will be spent in the budget. And remember that a good chunk of that money will actually be rebated to Canadians. And so any notion that this is just a, another tax is, uh, is, is a non-starter. Okay, let's hear from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Uh, I think we're missing something. I think you're going to see some income tax changes. Uh, I've been a CPA for the last 50 years, and I think you're going to see some significant tax changes possibly capital gains rate. Uh, but if I was in charge, the simplest thing to do is increase the the HST rate. That would be the easiest way to collect money. I don't know that they're going to do that. That's well, not, uh, yeah, but they need money. They need money. They're going to do things. Don't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, but if you if you're if your mantra is we're making life more affordable for families hit by inflation, raising a regressive sales tax is maybe not the way to go. Well, I'm but, not sure it's regressive, but where else are you going to find the money? There aren't enough wealthy people at the top to pay. We've got to get the money out of the middle class. That's where that's where the money rise, it comes from. Okay, I'll see if John has a suggestion about where they can get the money out. Thanks, Pat. Uh, John, do you think they would uh, go ahead and do that? I, I Yeah, I, I mean, this is the problem, right? At the end of the day, they either have to cut money internally, cut the spending, or they've got to find new revenue streams. And while the economy, uh, you know, I, I agree that coming out of the doldrums and the artificially suppressed economy, I, I think uh, we're going to have uh, the roaring 20s uh, 100 years later again. Uh, I think the economy is going to come back booming and it's going to be great. But the problem is everybody's coming for more money. So, it, you know, it's the traditional problem of government is that the ask is bigger than the ability. And I think the government's lost its uh, ability to say to people no. And, you know, that's that's just going to be the bottom line. Well, and it's interesting, you know, um, I, I like the way Charles put it in terms of the military spending that it, it's sort of a, a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, everybody wakes up and says, holy, you know what? We really need to do this. And this is on top of, of the pandemic with the same kind of reaction. Like they really needed to do that. There's not a lot of argument about that. And then there's all that other stuff. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, um, 
unless we resort to all these explanations, actually our debt really isn't that big. Something's very noisy. Charles, what do you think? Well, I mean, it really comes down to what your priorities are, not only as as a government, but also as citizens. I mean, if your priority is um, fighting uh, aggression on the part of rogue nations like Russia, like North Korea, um, that that's that's important, right? That's almost existential. If your priority is climate change, which again is existential, which could constitute a threat to, the, to our future, our children's future, um, those are choices to be made. As well, I mean, it's not just about tax hikes; it's also where we lower taxes. I mean, remember that the federal government has uh, reduced income taxes through increases to basic personal amounts claimed on taxes. And once these changes are fully implemented next year, 4.3 million seniors will actually benefit, of whom close to 500,000 will see their federal income tax reduced to zero. So those are those are choices we make as a people. It's choices that the government has to make. And this is important. Likewise, the payment um, you know, the boost the OAS pension by 10% in July of this year for seniors 75 and over, you know, a one-time payment of $500 in August 2021 to OAS pensioners, um, you know, turning 75 or, or who are over 75. Uh, I mean, these things matter. These are choices. And, and these are the kinds of things that a liberal government will continue to pursue because we're not just going to say, hey, we'll leave it all to tax cuts for the wealthy and reducing red tape. Uh, let's hear from Rhonda and Kitchener. So, Rhonda, where do you think the money will come from? Well, Libby, I know where I would go get it. After what I read, what I read. CEOs making billions of dollars from Hydro One. I mean... Millions, millions, not billions. Yes, <laughs> yes I mean, this is sad. I mean, I, where do I begin? I mean, this mess just didn't start with COVID. Our hospitals have been, been crowned and, and, and cut, and it's ridiculous. It's the last place to touch in government, and now our health care is suffering. The seniors are suffering. When did they last get a raise? The taxes, I would go after the people that, that just, to me, it's just greed, because I'm soon going to be a senior. I'm 64, Libby, and I'm scared. I get old. You can't afford it. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting thing. You really take. can't, dear. And Sorry, I, mean, I can't afford to why? get old. The highest taxes, we pay the highest taxes in the world, Not and quite. our hospitals are archaic. Our seniors aren't getting anything, Well, and CEOs are making billions. Insurance companies, that's another thing to go, go after. I mean, go, go to them. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving me rates. Even my rates went up for what? I'm hardly driving anymore, yet they still went up. Yep. And hydro, that they're getting billions. Why? And our hydro is going up. I mean, really investigate these people. They keep promising. The government keeps promising. But we know we can't trust them anymore because look at the mess before COVID. Our hospitals, I mean, they put good money in hospitals that should have never went there. Like, I mean, they should have been moved. We should have been new. We're way behind. Way behind. Okay, Rhonda, thanks for your call. Well, uh, some people are getting mad. (laughs) There's an election coming up. It's not the federal election. Um, we'll, see, we'll take. Libby, I was just going to say. I see. I think that lady represents your average Canadian right now. I think the pandemic has made us all a little cabin fever, a little uh, antsy, a little crazy. Uh, family fights over masks or not masks, mandates, not masks, mandates, and what what that all means is we got a government. That the smartest thing it could have done was not have an election for as long as possible, so that hopefully through one way or another. All of this is a dim memory in two to three years when there is an election. Well, that's why they have that pact, probably, uh, assuming mm-hmm. assuming it does. Uh, uh, it lasts until then. I'm looking at the time. I'm going to take a very quick call from Stan in Brantford. Hi, Stan. Hi, Amy. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Just a quick comment is what's going on and what we've experienced. I really feel for the for the working poor. I mean, they're going to get some brunt of this somehow. Uh, I was in Vancouver. Gas was $2.05 a, a liter. But uh, working in the school system and seeing what some people are going through now, it's unsustainable. I, 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 I feel for these people. And they're saying the working class or the middle class, 
that's dwindling. I mean, pretty soon we won't have a middle class. I think many, many feel that because, uh, um, we just spend so much and I know there's a need for money, but, uh, um, we've really got to look at how, how the poor, uh, low, um, lower income people are doing, especially the working poor. Thanks for that, Stan. Uh, we are basically out of time. I'm going to give you each 15 seconds. Charles, starting with you. Stan raises a really good point. And again, it goes to concerns around inflation. I mean, gas prices are out of control. It just makes it it's just infuriating. But I will say with regards to lift, trying to lift people out of poverty, the federal government has increased the guaranteed income supplement for nearly 900,000 low-income single seniors. And so that means 45,000 seniors lifted out of poverty. And that's significant. And that's the kind of thing we need to focus on in the government. We can't lose sight of that. John, last 15 seconds to you. It's an opportunity. The prime minister set the table so he has a functioning majority now. And he has the opportunity for bold and courageous leadership, things that we rarely see in Canadian politics. And I hope he's up to the challenge. Okay, a nice thought to end on. Thank you so much, Charles Bird and John McAtishan. Thanks, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Okay, we are taking another break when we come back. Um, the delegation in the Vatican to talk about reconciliation, they got a tour of some very precious artifacts that actually come from here, and now people are calling for them to be returned. We will talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Indigenous delegates who traveled to Rome to meet with Pope Francis got a private tour of precious Indigenous artifacts at the Anima Mundi Ethnological Museum. And this includes some of the Vatican's collection, which has not been seen publicly in decades or ever. Now, I really recommend that you go online to have a look at some of these very beautiful and meaningful items. And they include embroidered gloves from a Cree community, a baby built belt from a Gwich'in community, moccasins from British Columbia, and a rare kayak made by the Inuvialuit. The uh, regional corporation of the Inuvialuit actually requested last year that this be returned. And now some of the delegates who are awed by what they saw are also angry and demanding that some of the items be returned to their communities. Many of these objects were taken away from Indigenous people after the Canadian government outlawed cultural practices through the Indian Act in 1876. The Vatican, on the other hand, says that parts of the collections were actually gifts to popes and to the church. So what do you think? I mean, this has happened with other communities as well when Museums in places like Britain uh, have stuff that was taken during colonial times, and the countries of origin want it back. It is their cultural heritage. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Gerald McMaster, a Tier 1 Canadian Research Chair at OCAD University and Director of the Wapata Center for Indigenous Visual Knowledge, and Cody Grote, an Assistant Professor in the Department of History of the Indigenous Studies Program at Western University. Thank you for being with us. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, let's begin with Cody. So where where do some of these items come from in, in terms of how did they end up at the Vatican? Well, I really appreciate that you were referring to them as cultural items because I think there's a really easy uh way for people to refer to these as artifacts and using that language which is so common in the museum sector often severs the contemporary relationship that indigenous nations have with these objects i've seen a lot of people discussing these collections in the vatican and you hear language about these being ancestors a lot of these items really do have strong ancestral connections to the nation that they're part of i do feel there is definitely power imbalances that rather legislated 
through things such as the Indian Act, as you mentioned, and then also unspoken power imbalances that led to the illicit transfer of these items or the coercive transfer of these items as well. And I think you've also raised a really interesting point. There is a lot of efforts to have these repatriated back to Canada, but from there it's only a step one because there are a lot of cultural items within Canadian institutions as well that Indigenous nations want to see back within their own traditional territories so that they can properly steward and care for those ancestral items as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot going on here. Oh, I, there is a, a huge amount going on, and, and thank you for shedding some light on it. Uh, I'm just trying to get uh, to the history, and also uh, it, it just seems... I don't know what the right word is, maybe overwhelming. I mean, they are at the Vatican to try to get the Pope to agree to an apology. And um, they're basically, their things, their important, uh, important, I don't know, their important ancestral uh, items are actually there because they were taken one way or another. Um, Dr. McMaster, tell me about how that collection ended up in the Vatican, and also you have your own experience trying to see them. Yes. uh, The object that we're told, and this is, I'm just going online like everyone else seems to be at this point, um, and what what they do indicate is that uh, some of the the church has been collecting since the late 17th century, and that um, and some of the works actually that they've collected date back to what is often referred to as pre-Columbian, in other words, prior to the arrival of Columbus and his gang. And and then soon after that, you had Catholic missions around the world uh, trying to evangelize the indigenous populations, and frequently they would probably. Uh, I'm told, or at least what you read, is that they would send back objects back to Rome. So thus began the collections. And then uh, in 1926, I believe, there was an exhibition in the Vatican bringing the objects together for some exhibition. Well, 1926 is right, as Cody was saying, right in the middle of a period when it was illegal for indigenous peoples to be indigenous. In other words, the government and the church were intent on taking, at that time, the words, I believe, of uh, John A. MacDonald, take the Indian out of the child, you know, so that uh, the the assimilation uh, policy was in its full force. Um, And so any cultural, um, any items as I would often, I've written about, became almost useless because you couldn't practice your your religion. You couldn't you couldn't even dress up uh, and put on your traditional outfits. I remember doing some research about the Calgary Stampede, even, and when the folks at the Stampede had to write to Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the superintendent of Indian Affairs, asking them permission to have local Blackfeet come and participate, and he said, no, they can't. They should be on the reservation uh, farming and becoming good Canadians, basically. So so you have this period in which objects, um, basically, they were illegal to have for Indian people because they were confiscated by the governments and sent to museums. And it's possible that the church during this time was also doing the same thing. So they'd be in collusion with the law at that time. Um, you yourself, you've tried to have a look at these things, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've been doing research on a subject matter. Uh, it's quite narrow because, as you're probably familiar, Indigenous peoples have been uh, studied by artists, by writers, even by Hollywood and representations of in- Indigenous peoples is well known. Uh, and that's what we tend to learn from. Uh, we tend to go to these, this material to try and understand who we were from the, which is uh, ironic because it's all from the eyes of the European. What I'm interested in is the reverse as well. I'm interested in how did indigenous peoples uh, view European settlers coming in? And of course, this would include uh, uh, figures like Jesus Christ or just Christianity in general. So 
I had already been to many museums throughout Europe, in around 40 to be exact, and where I was welcomed and, you know, I went into the collections and, and identified many, many works and uh, beautiful, beautiful works from across Canada and, and the contiguous United States. And I, in 2018, I was selected by a number of Indigenous architects to curate an exhibition at the Venice Architectural Biennale. So I thought, well, since I'm in Italy, I might as well uh, contact Rome, the Vatican. And there were a few other museums in Rome, by the way, that I also visited. But uh, I knew from colleagues that uh, there there was a collection and um, uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people who tried to get into the collections or who've had dealings with the Vatican. And they told me how difficult it was. Well, I wrote, I telephoned, I had Italian research assistants who I thought may help to at least they speak the language. I not get, I did not get any word back. I approached uh, museum directors in Italy and German scholars, and I really came up empty. So, but I did go there in the end just to see if I could uh, see anybody, and I was not able to get any access. So it was it was disappointing. It was definitely disappointing for me and my research. But as I said, I believe there's got to be at least something that, uh, from what I've read, there's been some depictions of of Christ uh, by artists, and I have a good collection of material I collected from other uh, collections which depict Christ and Christianity in general. So I figured the Vatican must have this material as well. So uh, I'm still after it. Well, um, Cody, is it particularly galling that not only they have these objects, but it's not like they display it very much. Some of these things have apparently never been displayed, and they promised back in 2019, I guess that was just before the pandemic, that that many more objects would, would be put on display, but uh, is, is that something that uh, is an issue for you? I definitely think it is, and you know, besides the cultural items, I also know that there's a lot of um, archival-type documents. For example, the Vatican Collection has, um, like, Wasabek or Birchbark Scrolls, which are kind of specific to the Ojibwa nations in Ontario. They have wampum belts. And these are all documentary heritage that can tell us about history's political relationships, relationships with settlers, like Dr. McMaster was just mentioning. So it's not even these cultural items that really speak to our cultural sovereignty and continuity, but it's these items that actually tell us a bit about our own histories in a narrative form as well. But we don't know what is in these collections. There was legislation passed in the United States several years ago, decades ago, called NAGPRA, and it was about the repatriation of cultural items for federally funded institutions. And one aspect of that legislation was that federally funded institutions had to proactively reach out to Indigenous nations or communities that were affiliated with specific cultural items and tell them what was in their collections to assist the repatriation process. Domestically in Canada, we don't have any repatriation legislation. There's no onus to be proactive in that process. So again, while the Vatican has a lot of items that we aren't aware of, we don't know what is really in the extent of the collection, where these items are from. That's also an issue we're seeing domestically with collecting institutions in Canada where they don't have that obligation to proactively disclose what is in the collection. It makes it very difficult because a lot of Indigenous nations in southwestern Ontario or northern Canada or British Columbia, they don't know if their cultural items, ancestral remains are in the Vatican, are in institutions in Australia, in England. Um, it's really hard to really comprehensively bring these back to our communities and we're not sure where these items are. Uh I'm going to throw out a question here. Are you sure that those institutions themselves know uh, exactly what's in those collections, or have they been, you know, sitting in a warehouse for God knows how long? Oh, I'm almost certain that there's a lot of ambiguity about where these items come from. In kind of the era of Indian Act collecting in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, what happened in a lot of instances is farmers who were cultivating land in southwest Ontario in the west would often uh, disinter 
ancestral remains, human remains, or cultural items that they had found at various village sites that had been um, left because of the reserve system. And what they would often do, what a lot of people often did, is just put these in a box and mail them to a museum, mail them to the Geological Survey of Canada, to the National Museum of Canada, without any contextual information. And a lot of times those were added to our national collections or provincial collections, and there's still that uncertainty about where they came from, either you know, geographically as a whole or, or what specific farmstead that might have come from. And again, I've seen photos, and I'm sure Dr. McMaster has seen photos too as well, from these Vatican collections, and we're seeing cultural items that are just listed as being from Ontario, for instance. There are several Indigenous nations in Ontario, several distinct communities, cultural practices, cultural traditions. And we do have a lot of contextual information where we would be able to identify those. But then when it comes to repatriation, there also might be competing claims about which uh, community now might be the best to steward and care for those items. So it's not going to be an easy process by any means. And that's partially tied to the lack of this specific identifying information. And and Gerald McMaster, but are 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 you convinced that these institutions actually know what they have? Yeah, let me clarify about the repatriation efforts because the Americans and the Canadians and Europeans are all different. The Americans, as Cody was saying, there is legislation called the NAGPRA laws, which uh, uh, the, the onus. Uh, Gerald, I'm just going to say we just have about a minute left. Oh, uh, okay, sure. Okay, so, so yes, just letting you know that. Go ahead. Oh, oh you see, your question uh, is once again uh, is uh, do these institutions actually even know what they have? Oh, uh, yes. I think I think what you'll find now with um, uh, a lot of the database. Uh, procedures now uh, of museums getting their collections online is is starting to happen. Not everywhere, mind you, it's slower in some places, but uh, I think generally speaking, we're starting to see uh, that we're able to gain access to collections, uh, both in Canada and some, I guess, American uh, and European as well. But I think what you're going to find now that uh, accessibility uh, for some objects is is understandable, but as Cody was saying, there are certain objects that are uh, would be deemed sacred, and I think those are identified and worked with indigenous communities. Those are forbidden to be shown online, but I think you'll find other objects that will be available online. So there is efforts, concerted efforts, I think, by museums in Canada to work with indigenous peoples to identify objects. Okay, this is a fascinating conversation and an important one, and we'll have to take it up at another time. We're out of time today. So thank you so much, Dr. Gerald McMaster and Cody Grote. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.